Wish I Was Here, the new book by today's guest, M. John Harrison, poses a certain dilemma to interviewers hoping to introduce it, in that it is a work which, by its very nature, resists description. Rather than make my own attempt and fail, I've decided to cheat and report on how others have tried. So Monique Roffey goes for a deep dive into the back and forth, up, down, sideways mind of a true genius. Helen MacDonald plumps for an archaeology of fragments that shivers with wholeness. While Jonathan Coe turns interrogative, asking, is it a memoir? Is it a handbook for writers? However the book may be best described, if the book may be best described, the fact that it appeals to writers as diverse as Coe, Roffey and MacDonald, not to mention William Gibson, who described Wish I Was Here as hilarious and haunting, shows not just the range of minds that M. John Harrison appeals to, but also the pervasive, if ineffable, nature of his concerns. One thing I can say with certainty about Wish I Was Here is that it's quite unlike any other book I've read, in form, in style and in content. And these days, that is among the highest compliments one can pay to a book. M. John Harrison, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you. Um, I'd like to begin with the, the the concept of the book itself. And I use the, t- the word concept very advisedly because at a moment in the book, uh, you talk about hating concepts <laughs> and that uh, having a concept isn't having something to write. Um, and yet you also, later in the book, write... Uh, When I started, I didn't know what this book was, so I decided to let it tell me what I am. Uh, Just with these two thoughts in mind, would you be able to talk a little bit for our listeners about the the seed for this book? Was there a particular thought or a particular desire or a particular idea that it grew out of? Yeah, I think you have to go back to um, form and, and, and to go back to form, even if like me, you're going to break it, even if your intention mm-hmm. is to break the form. Um, you have to go back to what you imagine the content will be. And in this case, I had spent maybe 40 years, like most authors, writing bits and pieces which I knew would never get used for anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Journal entries, diary entries, uh, latterly blog entries, um, various kinds of notes that you might collect for bits of work that never get completed, Mm. even bits and pieces of work that never got completed, um, which I always keep Mm. (laughs) on the basis, you know, of being an old pro that you don't throw anything away that you might be able to use. Um, And every so often over that 40 years, I've dragged these things out into the light and looked at them and thought, what could I make out of this? Mm. What? How could I? How could I? How could I abuse a, a, an established form, mm-hmm. or make up a new form that, that would enable me to do this? To um, to do it without simply writing it as a book of diary entry mm-hmm. or a journal or, or or any of those easier things. Um, when you say um, abuse an established form, what? established form specifically do you feel you you're abusing with this well i hope i'm abusing memoir Mm -hmm. i hope i'm abusing most of the concepts and 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 this is this is where my dislike of concepts comes in most (laughs) of the concepts that that upon which or the assumptions upon which we would base a definition of what a memoir is Mm -hmm. definition of what autobiographical writing is and so on and so forth um, and uh, at the heart of that, at the absolute basis of that, is the idea of memory, obviously. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and 
I've never had much of a memory. The book deals with this instantly. The book admits mm -hmm. it on page one. But basically, uh, my memory has always been very poor indeed. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not only left with a poor memory, but I'm also left with this ragbag of notebooks. Right. And suddenly, during the lockdown, along with everybody else, mm -hmm. <laughs> I looked at this material, I thought, without much hope that I could do anything with it, and I suddenly saw that if I took the entirety of... I started with 220,000 words wow. okay. um, of notes, and that if I took those and begin, began to select from them, they would fall into themes. They would fall mm. into about eight, eight or nine, maybe a, a dozen at the most basic uh. themes, and which are obsessional to me. Mm. You know, these themes appear in all my fiction, whether it's science fiction or a book about rock climbing. Uh. Um, and uh, I thought, well, okay, I'll just refine this process yeah. um, until the themes themselves begin to develop into some kind of longer longer structure. Mm -hmm. So that's how we got the book. Mm -hmm. And I think that once you're once you've started a movement like that, the next thing is to recognize what kind of structures it does suggest, both mm -hmm. for deconstruction and for use for actual use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll come on to some of the um, the specific themes uh, in a moment, and and also I like I like I'd like to explore this idea, which uh, seems to come a little bit out of what you were just saying, almost of the, the this book being a found object in a way, at least one that's sort of found and then and then it given given yeah. shape. But I'd like to I'd like to rest with this idea of memory uh, to begin with, um, because it's funny that you say you have a poor memory because. Uh, at the moment, I'm editing a, an interview book uh, for interviews from the bookshop over the past 10 years. And one of the uh, those interviews is with uh, the Norwegian writer, Carlo Viknausgaard, who obviously wrote this kind of monumental six-volume work yeah. of autofiction or memoir or autobiography, depending on how you might want to define it. And one thing he said very early on in that uh, interview was that he had a terrible memory. And uh, so it seems to be something quite common amongst people and I wonder do you think your, your memory is actually really bad or do you think it seems bad compared to perhaps the kind of memory that writers perhaps pretend to have when they're engaging with the form of memoir and is that perhaps what maybe underlies a little bit your your suspicions of this form or indeed they're expected to have I mean we, mm. we uh, this returns to the idea of of of, of the memoir as for me, not as a broken form, but as a form that's more, like most forms, more difficult mm -hmm. than it appears to be when you mm -hmm. when you begin to interrogate it. Um, and I think there is a possibility of that. Yes, um, that 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 part of one's modesty around the, the, the capacity of memory is due mm -hmm. to the fact that we're supposed to be able to remember everything because that's what the genre uh, needs. On the other hand, I was fairly dissociated, uh, even as a child. And, uh, you know, to a degree, the commonest thing that was said about me when I was a child was that I was not paying attention. Right. And I was not paying attention, with the result that I can't remember a lot of things because actually I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all there is to it. Um, I remember a, an awful lot about 
rock climbing and the rock climbs mm. I've done because rock climbing forces your attention to be on the mm. thing you're doing. If you lose attention, you could lose all sorts of other things, um, yeah. basically. Uh, but as a child, I was just extremely vague. I'm sure there's a disorder. Mm. It has, I'm sure it has a disorder label now. But um, mm. I just think of it as, as being... A bit, a bit dissociated. Uh, uh-huh. So I, I think that affects your memory. I, I think that possibly if you're not paying attention, you don't lay down the memory. But mm. what I do have is really powerful, very short but really powerfully visual uh, glimpses, mm-hmm. um, and I can still work with those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One thing I found particularly interesting at the moment in the book where you do reflect on the idea of memory and perhaps your your, uh, your lack of it in many ways is that the way it makes us reflect on the the nature of memory itself, because as I understand it from the, the little sort of scientific literature I've read around it, the sort of, you know, the the current understanding of memory anyway is something that sort of essentially reforms every time one has that memory and changes and sort of shapeshifts depending on the the situation and the context in which it's uh, in which it's remembered. Um, and let's say uh, if you are in, in possession of some sort of particularly poor memory or some sort of memory disorder, even if that's so, I felt as a as, as a reader who probably I consider myself I, I imagine I have a relatively average memory, like I certainly not of kind of Proustian proportions, but but certainly, you know, I, I feel I remember a certain amount. There was something about the way you talked about memory, which felt very familiar and seemed to kind of crystallize a lot about my experience of um, of memory too. I think that would be great. I mean, I don't think, to a degree, however, How a deconstructive a piece of writing is intended to be, it's also intended to make some kind of communication, and mm-hmm. and and it's also a communication from one human being to another. So it would be really nice to think that that's what one had done. Well, it was certainly. I mean, I guess it's certainly at least for me, maybe my maybe our, you know our, our memories are closer than <laughs> than, than I thought. But um, but I'm also interested in the the um, the thing I suppose, which is a kind of corollary to that is the idea of the self because uh what we often find in i I think often the kind of the less interesting memoirs is this sort of quite defined sense the writer has of their self of who they are of perhaps what they you know what their beliefs are what they represent what their ideas are and uh, once again we don't find that in in wish i was here we we find something much more fragmented and much more um i guess kind of i guess kind of disparate um is that sort of was is that reflective of your kind of the idea you would have of your own self in a way your experience of what it is to be m john harrison certainly since since becoming a uh, since seriously becoming a writer in uh-huh. say my early 20s yes mm. um i'm always fascinated and the book deals with this to a degree. I'm always fascinated by the way a book 
that that one might be going to write mm-hmm. looks for a writer to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is nothing to do with kind of trying to think your way into it or pretend to be the characters or you know take on the roles of the of the characters. It's nothing whatsoever to do with that. It's that somehow a book requires a certain author and you're not mm-hmm. quite him yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and you won't be quite him until you've finished. And by the time you have finished, you won't be him anymore anyway, because uh-huh. you may have written the book. Um, so that I, I kind of see my personality as a, as a kind of rolling incremental mm. aggregate, um, uh-huh. which fits perfectly for a book like this, of course. Yeah, yeah. Would you say in a sense you kind of perhaps write yourself out of certain personalities in a way? Yes, I would see them as, I, I, I perhaps wouldn't put it like that. Well, I live my life in phases, 10-year phases, right. seven-year phases. Um, I become obsessed for quite long periods um, and then suddenly I'm not that person anymore. I don't have uh-huh. an obsession. I've moved on to something else. Um, we're taught that to live like that is somehow, as it were, wrong. But I don't think it is. I think probably that naturally, if we were left to ourselves, then we would probably live like that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, it strikes me as quite a sort of, um, quite in a sense, quite sort of psychologically difficult way in which to think of oneself as well. Like I, I think, I think often you know when people talk about uh, certain types of psychosis, it's it sort of gets connected to a sort of a disintegration of the idea of a continuity of the self. And yet at the same time, I very much recognise, and once again, myself and what you're talking about, this idea of, yeah, being sort of, there is at once a continuity, but also these phases, also this kind of fragmentation. Yeah, I uh, I don't see that as a contradiction. I think there is a kind of terrorist awareness, which maintains um, and is reconstructed by each new phase, each new mm-hmm. personality, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. And that that acts as a kind of, um, I was going to say, a kind of separate continuity, a con- uh, uh, an uber continuity, um, without a conscious, almost without a conscious connection to mm. whatever else is going on. But I do yeah. believe it's there. And But at the same time, I don't believe that makes me the same person from one 10-year period to the next 10-year period. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does this connect in, I wonder, to another idea which is very present in the book? And I and I confess that on the um, so one of the half times I've read the book actually by this stage, I haven't quite been able to pin down, and maybe that's um maybe that's intentional, but is is this idea of kind of haunting and ghosts, mm. which seems to come up in sort of different iterations um throughout the text. Like is what for you is the connection between this sense of haunting and this sense of kind of memory in the self? I think uh, I think again it fits with the the whole concept of, of terraces of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are, there is always more than one if you're a writer. Um, we know what the obvious one is, um, which is the difference between you and the text, and the text and right. its subject matter. There's there's two terraces to start with. Um, I think that the whole idea of Haunting is one of the major themes in the book, mm. um, and 
it's used as a metaphor for almost every other right. possibility. <laughs> because I see it everywhere I look, this idea that you're not quite there. You're, mm-hmm. You wander through your life, for instance, mm-hmm. you, and you don't feel connected to it. At the same time, in some way, your life wanders through you mm-hmm. and is also not connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a writer, those those kinds of disconnections are innate to the method. Mm-hmm. The whole point is to somehow shed shed bits of yourself and descri- and then describe them to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to always be aware of a self, however temporary, that's yours, but you're not that. Mm-hmm. Um, what better description than of, of a writer than somebody who haunts his own subject matter? Mm. You know, that's that's really interesting as well because it sort of it puts me in mind of again coming coming back to this this interview book we're compiling. That one thing I found really fascinating was how when I feel writers are being most honest about the the writing process, how odd that must seem to people who do not write, in fact. Like there's something about the the way, you know, just your description there of kind of the writing kind of passing through you. Um, As somebody who who writes fiction, I could kind of, I could completely understand that. And yet it's a sort of thing which I could very much sort of imagine somebody who, maybe, you know, is coming for advice on writing must just seem completely sort of esoteric in some way. (laughs) It's a don't try this at home, um, I think, uh, level of advice. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the older I've got, the more I've thought about writing and the Uh more I've thought about writing, the more I've come to conclusions like these which seem overthought, perhaps over-sophisticated, certainly very strange. But if you come out of the Gothic, if you Mm -hmm. come out of the extreme romantic uh, uh, position, uh, which I think Mm -hmm. the Gothic is, then you tend to be able to manage concepts like that. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. uh, With with perhaps a bit more, a bit less terror than, (laughs) than, than, than an ordinary writer would. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I have no idea. But for me, these are these these are in, in a sense not supposed to be truths. They're not mm-hmm. supposed to be um, elements of um, some codified, standardized process. They are just images, and images are great because they they can often reverse. Mm-hmm. You can always reverse a metaphor. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You know. Do you would you that you consider yourself somebody? kind of who came out of the gothic who was formed by a kind of gothic sensibility to a degree yeah i mean my my favorite early reading was i was going to say the horror story but but actually Mm -hmm. broader than that my favorite early reading as a teenager was the metaphysical story you know i I would talk in terms of uh arthur macon Mm. uh, walter delamere Charles Williams, all those nice twenties and thirties exponents of 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 the meta metaphysics, mm. uh, religious or secular, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, so I'm quite by now. 
and move, moving towards writers who are very secular in their use of it, such as Robert Aikman. Mm. Um, the, um, he, he's also known as a horror story writer, but he isn't really. This is mm -hmm. fiction. Of, this is fiction of metaphysics. Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, this is fiction which precisely tries to deal with concepts like terrorist awareness, um, um, whilst using concepts like terrorist awareness. Um, so yes, I would think of myself as having that as a grounding. However, I've read everything else since. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one 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 uh, kind of I guess contemporary um, I don't know if movement is the right word but sort of sensibility which which you address a little bit in the book is this uh, idea of the weird uh, and I, I say contemporary I mean it's it has its that's quite a quite a history but it seems to have sort of bubbled up to the surface um, uh, culturally in in, in the yeah. last decade or so do is there is, do you think you could trace a sort of a direct ascendancy from the kind of the gothic and these writers you were talking about to this uh, I mean is it is it metaphysical? I mean, because for me, the weird there's this kind of this sense a little bit of the kind of something quite grounded as well, even if grounded in the sort, yes. of, the sort of folk horror sense. But I, I, I think for a writer of my generation, that began to happen in the 1970s, mm -hmm. uh, I think. And uh, it was, in my case, the result of, of, of an actual conscious self-questioning, which went, what if what if you took the horror out of a horror story? What would you have mm. left? What if you took the fantasy out of a fantasy novel? What would you have left? Ah. Um, what if you wrote a completely realistic fantasy novel? How would you do that? Um, how, how is it that Elizabeth Bowen, who is a, a literary mainstream writer, can write a metaphysical short story without ever mentioning any kind of fantasy, except for a, an ordinary human one, a, say, a sense of wonder, you know? Um, the For me, again, it was a formal problem in the sense, mm -hmm. can you do this? Um, and, and once I began to solve that problem, I began to see that it, then it could become a medium um, mm -hmm. for writing about the real. That essentially yeah. you could, you, you weren't you weren't there to to as it were necessarily strip away the metaphysics or strip away the horror or the fantasy. But what uh -huh. you could do was to repurpose the whole thing as a way of talking about the real. So you mm -hmm. bring up the real, um, but you taint it, you poison it with with the unreal. Um, mm -hmm. And you can do that by simply by messing with the order of something. You don't need to have a ghost. There's no need to have a ghost. There's no need to have any horror in a horror story. You can, you can, but that enables you to begin to talk about, to, to begin to talk politically. Mm -hmm. And I think at the point when I was discovering that personally, um, others were discovering and building both ontology and psychogeography as we know mm. today. So that um, it, I was obviously not alone in, in, in trying to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That idea of kind of writing about the real and using elements of, uh, I suppose one might say elements of genre to do so, also seems to be something... Um, that sort of that's that's that seems kind of evident in the way you talk about science fiction as well, um, and and really in in a sense 
you um what's the turn of phrase you use i think you talk about the kind of the the sort of accepting the kind of the the fictionality of fiction and sort of it's you know we it's kind of part of the contract that we know you're making things up and therefore that in some way seems to 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 root the fiction more somehow yes if rather than just kind of a sort of overworking things in order to kind of convince people that you know planet x you know millions of light years away actually exists yeah 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 uh that's very conscious very conscious Mm -hmm. indeed um i think uh that uh originally science fiction was was a branch of irony Mm. (laughs) Um, it, it knew exactly what it was up to you know um it knew that it was always a a a political comment on mm-hmm. on its own time on its on its own day and via its own concerns mm-hmm. um but that got stripped by this by the mid by the 60s and the, particularly the 70s that got stripped out in favor of immersive exciting uh entertainment um mm-hmm. but but immersive is the key word you know the whole idea is, as you say, to convince people that uh, Planet X exists, mm-hmm. and that they're there, that they're inside these events. Actually, it's really difficult to convince anybody that a bus station exists <laughs> and that these events are going on, you know, in a bus station are really happening you ask any realistic novelist <laughs> how difficult yeah, yeah. it is <laughs> uh, also i think it's a pointless exercise in a sense you know mm-hmm. because these things aren't real you might as well use them for some other purpose and mm-hmm. for me that that purpose is always ironic uh, yeah 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 in, in a weird kind of way sort of looked at in that way it seems almost that there's a a greater honesty to something like uh like a work of science fiction than a work of let's say contemporary realist literary fiction uh, you yeah, know, because it doesn't there's less of a pretense in a sense yes and i think um i do say somewhere in the book you know that essentially uh, i've got more faith in a in a in a puppet show mm-hmm. a completely unrealistic obvious piece of of performance um than i have in most intense realism um mm because the the whole the whole job of mimesis is to is to tell a fib mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas you you can't believe in a puppet show mm-hmm. you can't and you can't disbelieve in it either you know yeah. it's doing something else it's talking to you in a different way it's not mm-hmm. trying to convince you of something in that yeah. sense from a point of view of um sort of the the place of science fiction in i guess literary culture and uh and culture more generally it seems to have gone on quite an interesting journey because my sense is sort of in the early days of what might be called science fiction i guess kind of you know from you know hg wells aldous huxley zamayatin people like that there seemed to be a kind of a seriousness and a sort of a cultural import to it and then i guess maybe it's a period you were talking about like the sort of uh the 60s and 70s certainly what would be considered sort of mainstream science fiction it seemed to have been sort of broadly often dismissed as kind of cult, uh sort of frivolous in some way or sort of 
sort of uh, without without some sort of uh, real cultural import. And then recently, and we see this at the bookstore, the taste for science fiction among readers is increasing kind of almost exponentially. Like we have recently, in the last few years, expanded our science fiction section uh, by about five or six times because it seems to be speaking to people in a sort of, and, and not just in a kind of sort of so supposedly frivolously entertaining way, but it seems to be where people are turning for a kind of a reflection of sort of upon serious matters and serious ideas again. Yeah, I don't think it ever, it, in a sense, the, the strain that you're talking about, which, you know, for purposes of argument, you could you can begin it with Wells if you if you want to. Um, the, the as it were political strain of yeah. SF that's that never quite disappeared. Mm-hmm. There was a thin thread uh, uh, for a while in the in the forties and but it, by the fifties everybody was um, using science fiction in America because it mm-hmm. enabled them to talk about things that would would have got them fired. Yeah, if they talked about them directly. So a lot of science fiction from that period, while it is um, narratively sort of clunky, mm-hmm. uh, full of scientific nonsense, and 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 really is is operatic, <laughs> space <laughs> operatic in the in the sense of a horse opera, you know, a cowboy, a cowboy novel. It still deals with quite serious subject matter mm-hmm. behind. Um, and I think that was rather clever. Um, mm-hmm. Also, sometimes they got the science right. You know, yeah. one science fiction writer was arrested towards the end of World War II for describing how to build an atomic bomb too well. They right. couldn't <laughs> work out how he how had he worked this out. All he'd done was to read a few science journals um, and and you know make the obvious um, make draw the obvious conclusions. So so. The ability of science fiction to be serious was maintained mm-hmm. uh, and, and exploded again with the kind of social science fiction that began in the the, the 1960s. And mm-hmm. I, I do believe we, that that is now what people are tending to read. When when mm-hmm. when you have all those visitors to, to the shop, that's what they're yeah. looking for. They're looking, yeah, yeah. they're looking for science fiction that deals with their issues now mm-hmm. um, and again I don't think and there are certain types of science fiction like the disaster novel mm. or dystopia which have never done anything else they've uh-huh. never done anything else but dealt with the politics of their day mm-hmm. you know the social issues of their day uh, and so on and so forth yeah um, although that particular kind of strain um, we said in the book a sort of a a dissatisfaction from you about most sort of examples of the kind of the apocalyptic or disaster uh, narrative that like it doesn't it 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 is it's almost a sense that you kind of have a sense that it was stuck in the nineteen fifties nineteen sixties concept of what a a disaster would look like and yes. and a lot of the kind of the the sort of like to say the the the, the new and innovative ways we're going to destroy the world <laughs> that we've yeah. developed in the last few decades haven't really been explored. Um, um, Bill Gibson and I often talk about this, the idea that that we need a new kind of disaster. And, mm-hmm. and, and actually, I think what we mean is we need a new, we need new kinds of forms to deal with the new kinds of disasters mm. uh, that we have. 
Um, most uh, most disaster novels up until the late sixties were class based. They were to do with loss of power in the middle classes um, as a result of the Second World War, especially in yeah. Great Britain. Um, the idea was that you would rebuild the class, the middle class, um, mainly by going away somewhere on your own and, and making an allotment yeah. uh, <laughs> of your own potatoes. Um, yeah. We're a bit stuck with that idea of the disaster, this idea that somehow the disaster is a thing that can be it's that it's that it's that its time scale can be dealt with with absolute accuracy there is a beginning of the disaster and there is as it were an end to the mm. disaster or the beginning of an end to the disaster yeah. and what we see now is that we we just live in a constant disaster uh-huh. for instance <laughs> So how do you write about that? How do you write the disaster novel of living in a constantly renewed disaster? Um, and that's what I'm interested in, the idea that new forms should be arriving. Um, mm-hmm. I can't think of how to do it myself. Yeah. But I expect there are some young people out there who might <laughs> well be able to do it. Have, is there anybody you've found a kind of a glimmer of, you know, any writers that you've sort of discovered or you've read things of that, that sort of, seem to be edging in that direction? I think uh, Isabel Widener. uh, Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. um, Is beginning to stretch all the forms, not just science fiction, but every way that you could possibly write um, and and stretch stretch it, pull it around as if it's kind of molten in some way, Mm -hmm. um, to speak on their own behalf. You know, and to speak on behalf of of red hot things instead of rather cooled off and finished things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as a as a sort of a, a slight um, sidestep, because you brought up the um, the subject of class. This is something that you sort of touch upon and uh, and reflect a little bit on. It's a sort of this this sense, and I think um, I think this is something that is. I mean, it's, it's not specific to British people, but I think it has a certain particular um resonance in um in, in britain and to, to people to people who've been raised in britain is this sort of this kind of i guess this idea of kind of class categorization and particularly i think in the in the book world if you come from a background which is not largely represented uh in the book world which let's face it in britain is very much a kind of I say solidly middle or if not sort of you know, very upper middle class environment. It seems to me that it's um, it's very easy to sort of to, to fall between the cracks of um, of that that industry. Mm. Um, at a moment, you 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 even say that sort of to this day, I have no real sense of what class I ought to be. Um, I was wondering if you might reflect just for a little bit on that sort of how that sense of class and particularly in relation to writing and and ideas and the kind of the so-called literary world, how it has had an impact on both your work and also your kind of, uh, I guess, career as a, as a writer and critic. It's very complicated because my problem with, with, with class is that I wasn't sure which class I belonged to. 
and, I, yeah. and I'm still not. Mm-hmm. Um, that my um, my parents were um, entry level middle class. Very definitely. I liked that turn of phrase. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm keen on it too uh, because it does. It, I took me a long time to find a term that would actually describe what I feel, which is that it was mm-hmm. it was definitely an entry level uh, that they were mm-hmm. at the, they were at the beginning beginning of that point where the managerial class came into its power, as it were. But was also no longer the middle class that it had been before the Second mm-hmm. World War. It was a different kettle of fish. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, were very definitely working class, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that brought me up. In um, that meant that as a child, I, I was subject to all sorts of stresses and strains between those mm-hmm. two sort of class positions. Um, in a way, science fiction and, and, it, and to write popular fiction of any sort, um, even back then, was to avoid the problem that you stated. You know, you could write popular fiction; you could be accepted into into the into the publishing world of popular fiction mm-hmm. um, without being middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as you were delivering the goods, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, the brilliant about brilliant thing about writing for money is that all you have to do is deliver the goods. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and at that point, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you came from. If you can write a good book or sell a lot of copies, then you know, it's fine. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not sure that it that for me personally, it was a class problem to to try and move between those two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, although I was obviously mo- motivated to move be- between them because I'd moved between them as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt irritated that it was more difficult to be accepted as a literary writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I knew it was perfectly possible. And I know now that it's perfectly possible to do both and to swap mm-hmm. between them. I had an extraordinary review in the mid-2000s on a blog where the guy said, I really don't get this M. John Harrison. He's, he starts as a sci-fi writer and then he, he writes he writes a literary mainstream novel and then he goes back to being a science fiction writer. <laughs> I don't understand this. And, and I understand it in the sense that what I want is to be allowed by publishing structures to write what I want to write. Mm-hmm. Because actually, the genre that I write it in is not the point. It's the content, the yeah. meaning. Writing is about meaning, you know? Mm-hmm. And and as long as, for me, as long as the book is handling the meaning in in, in a way I that I want to, then mm-hmm. I don't care what you call it, mm-hmm. um, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't got too much time left, and there are two things I really do want to touch on before we finish. One you've already mentioned is the subject of climbing, which um, which comes up uh, quite a bit in the book, and which was sort of 
a uh, a passion of yours as a younger man and it seemed to fall out of your life although you do say that sort of uh, now you're so, you're sort of uh, returning to it in uh, well, attempting, uh, to. <laughs> attempting to um it's funny i because when i was reading that i was thinking about almost exactly 20 years ago i was in um yosemite national park and yeah. i and i met a climber and it, it's odd because i think in, in one sense he was from the, the the Basque country, actually. It was climbing. Um, oh, what's it? I can't remember the name. The the, the very famous rock, sheer rock face of um, Yosemite. Okay. It was taking him. El Capitan. It was taking him about five days to scale it. He was sleeping in a tent on the rock face, and I remember thinking very distinctly, like, in one sense, climbing is a sport. The concept of it lends itself very much to the sense of metaphor, in a way. Uh, and has been sort of probably used, and you can tell me as a climber, probably abused by writers over the uh, over the decades as a kind of a you know a very kind of obvious metaphor for uh, you know for struggle and achievement and you know overcoming or whatever. And yet, I remember the really profound sense of talking to this climber uh, as somebody who was you know very bookish and writing and sort of and realizing a real sort of almost kind of separation between my way of looking at the world, my apprehension of things and the way this person understood the world and interacted with it. And so it was fascinating to find in you this kind of almost coming together of these two um, mindsets in a way, like you seem to be kind of fundamentally both a writer and a climber. Um, And so I was hoping you might just reflect on the connection that if there is one, that these two mindsets these two mentalities have for you i don't know that it can be for me that it can be um put as put in terms of an opposition um Mm -hmm. partly i think because when i set out to write climbers my first idea was to make it a metaphor was to make it as metaphorical as possible. Um, and therefore, I was already beginning to look at everything I climbed and every piece of rock and every other climber as, as potential pieces of, you know, metaphorical structure. Um, so that... Uh, originally, I wanted to write a book about obsession, partly because I always want to write a book about obsession because I am an obsessional. Um, and I thought, how will I do that? I'd like to, I'd also like to write something that, 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 that is experiential, that has ex- more experiential connections than, than a science fiction novel would have, or a, or a fantasy novel would have. Uh, what you did, back then in the mid to late 70s if you wanted to write a book like that was to write a novel about surfing right and i thought oh god i hate water i hate water (laughs) i can't swim it's cold and you can't breathe that stuff you know um i suppose i'll have to go to cornwall and learn surfing and then i suddenly thought mike you go climbing four times a week (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is is climbing experiential or is it not? 
and and you know that's what gave me the push to to, to do to start taking the notes for climbers. Um, I don't think I can answer that question. You know, there there was a point at which I got addicted to climbing very difficult um, climbs on on the little bits of crystal that sometimes mm. poke out from gritstone mm. and are arranged at random by nature so that if you don't get the order right, seven moves in, you will fall off whatever you do. Right. So if you've not, you've not started out with the outside of your left foot on the right hold, as it were, you cannot get the sequence correct and you can't mm-hmm. save yourself from an incorrect sequence. Um, and I thought, this is so like writing a good sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, also, I was into deeply into crossword puzzles at the time, and I thought crossword puzzles, rock climbing on crystal, writing good sentences, my heart, you know, these are the things I like to do. But other than The Climbers is a book about obsession, and other than the fact that this book finishes that off, in a sense, mm-hmm adds some kind of closure to that across a lifetime. Um, I can't really say anything about that. Hmm. Hmm. That's fair enough. <laughs> I mean, you you said it how you wanted to say it in the book, and that's always the kind of the the paradox of these interviews. And uh, and I feel it when the, the role is reversed. It's sort of like being asked to talk about something which you have expressed exactly how you best you could express it in the pages yeah. of the book is always a bit of a... Or kind of a bit of a hiding to nothing, and yet. <laughs> also, you want you want the reader to have some takeaway, so yeah. everybody builds a little bit of ambivalence in, so that the reader yeah. can 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 draw their own conclusions, and you mm-hmm. can use it as a base as a basis for their own perception. When I was younger, I thought writing should be the struggle with what you are. Now I think it's the struggle to find out who you were. There are people who learn to dissociate early, to orbit whatever is happening to them without taking part. By late adolescent, people like us are rarely losing height, let alone touching down. Memory never quite works for us. Our distance from events is already too great. I soon discovered that writing things down helps less to close that distance than you'd think. But notes make good source material. And when you keep notebooks, they eventually begin to suggest something. About what is not clear, but something about something. I liked a notebook spiral bound. It was easier to police. I couldn't bear hasty scribble, interlinears, strike through, muddle. If I thought of a better sentence, I was compelled to tear out the whole page and begin again. I wanted the notes to be notes, but I also wanted them to be pristine, finished, absolutely articulate little gems. So soon I was keeping two sets of accounts, the rough and the smooth, the instant and the perfected. Some notes didn't even seem worth the effort of polishing. These 
I labelled nouts, experiencing a vague resentment if ever I caught sight of them again. In the mid-1980s, they would be transferred laboriously into their own computer files and then dumped. Years after you've abandoned it, a note like that takes on a new, often uneasy semblance of life. The file is as warm to the touch as the radioactive container at the end of Robert Aldrich's 1955 film, Kiss Me Deadly. Lift the lid and you could swear that you hear, in a voice composed of both a whisper and a roar, the continuous repetition of a word. Obviously, there's the fear of failing to remember, the fear of the loss of this or that detail, the fear that you'll forget what you were shopping for. All of that is exactly what you'd expect. But the additional, the real fear behind notebooking, the fear these fears disguise, is the fear of not having seen in the first place. And in that sense, keeping a notebook quickly becomes the act of seeing in itself. A note, or it never happened. A note, or you didn't look. So write this down before it goes. A stag's antlers imagined at the end of the garden, at the end of the day, among the browning leaves of last year's iris. Write this, sand. Write this, a lacquer box. Write this, bought, contents unseen. And this, some birds viewed from a distance. Write that their wings are as flat as planks when they turn against the sky. Write that Friday approaches and recedes, but it's never where you are. Warm air, sunshine, round blossom like a confectioner's shop, and further off, the junk man's wonky bugle call. Write a note, or this sunshine never fell through this window onto this minor, unnoticed, unreviewed event. A note in a notebook has this exact air of desperation to it. It invites and yet refutes the act of reclamation. I um, just to, just to finish in the in the introduction, I mentioned what um, Jonathan Coe uh, sort of posed the question about whether it was a, a handbook for writers, um, and I thought that was kind of that was rather mischievous in a sense on uh, on Jonathan's part because if anybody uh, buys this looking for kind of uh, let's say a kind of conventional top 10 tips for, <laughs> for writing your novel um, and, or, or, you know, or, or getting published or something like that, then this isn't that book. And I'm sure from this, our conversation where uh, uh, it's become quite clear to our listeners that it's, it's not like that. And yet in a sense, it, it is a kind of a guide for writers in, in one respect, I suppose, which is it sort of, it sort of, it maps out, to an extent, what you have come to understand about what writing is for, and um, and how and how one should sort of deal with certain uh, or could perhaps deal with certain certain pitfalls of the do I want to say writing process or probably just writing um, writing yeah. life. Um, how how comfortable or otherwise do you feel in the position of somebody? giving advice, however, um, however sort of fragmented, however sort of dissociated to people on, on how to write? I think as long as you're clear 
that your position is again quite ironic mm-hmm. and that you are you're not you're not making rules you're not trying to codify or standardize the process mm-hmm. in any way but you're saying these are these are the pitfalls as they expose themselves to me. Um, these are the successes that I had. This is the way I decided to describe them because I couldn't think of any other way of describing them. Yeah. Um, for instance, I, I, hate, I hate the concept of block. Uh, uh-huh. I don't believe in block. A block is just like you've got a problem, mm-hmm. you know, and writing is about having problems and solving them. If it takes you six months, you you put it in a drawer and go and go and do something else for six months and let your brain do the work. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. Block is not this big tragedy that happens. It's only a big tragedy for the publishing industry, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> not for not for the writing. So it's full of that kind of half serious advice, which goes, yeah. for, you know, let's look at this, let's examine what we mean when we say writer's block or what, yeah. we, what, what we mean when we say character or causality or any of those things. I have deep suspicion about a lot of these standardised terms mm-hmm. and certainly a lot of the standardised structures that people, mm-hmm. that people want to learn so that they can make a perfect Netflix <laughs> They'll they'll all be written by AI soon enough anyway. Yes, exactly. No. <laughs> one um one thing I really liked actually in the in the in the way you write about block, in fact, is it sort of it really seems to undermine or sort of pull the rug out from under this idea, which I think culturally is very um very present of kind of almost a sense of connection between block or the lack of block and potency in a writer and particularly in the kind of the i guess the great male writer of the yes, you know, the figure of the 20th uh, the 20th century like in some way if you're suffering from block you are in fact you've lost your potency you've lost some sort of writer's mojo yeah. and whereas in fact the as you say the concept you you've you, you as, as you define it is that there's sort of there is this is about work being done it's not about kind of charging through and smashing everything down but kind of knowing how to how to step back, knowing how to kind of like, yeah, let things percolate, um, yeah, for the book to become what it should be. Yes, indeed, and 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 also that so much writing is done by your unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. You know that old-fashioned item. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This has been such a pleasure to speak to you today, Mike. Um, Wish I Was Here was is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company. It's also available, uh, well, from our bricks and mortar store, also available from our our, our website or from your um, local independent bookstore, wherever wherever you may be based. Um, all that remains for me to say is, M. John Harrison, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It was great. It was great to talk. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. 
Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>